Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading professors around the world share their most recent work, or work that is still in progress, as is the case today, where I have the big honor of speaking with Robert Sapolsky, Stanford Professor of Biology, Neurology, and Neurosurgery. Robert is a world-renowned academic and author of highly successful books such as A Primate's Memoir, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. His Stanford lectures were among the first to be made available online across the entire university and have been watched tens of millions of times. Half of these views probably stem from me during my undergrad days. Robert is a MacArthur Genius Fellow. He is a highly engaging teacher and lecturer, not least because of his wonderful and humble sense of humor. In this episode, Robert announces his upcoming yet-to-be-completed book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. Robert discusses when and how he came to give up his belief in free will and why we all should if we want to live in a fairer society. However, we also discuss some alluring upsides of believing in free will, why the belief in free will is so sticky, and Robert acknowledges that he'd love to swallow the blue pill, allowing him to believe in free will again, even if that would be a factually incorrect belief. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope uh, that you will enjoy it too. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Today, I have the big honor of speaking with none other than Robert Sapolsky. Thank you, Robert, for joining the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Eric. So we do something. Usually, we talk to people about a recent publication that they have. Today, we're doing something special. Um, we're talking about a publication that has not been published yet. We're talking about something that will be published, and then maybe we can be excited about what is the publication that is in the works that you want to talk about. Well, I should note this is a publication that not only has not been published yet, but hasn't been written completely yet. So uh, just the mere mention of it provokes some anxiety. Um, a book which is due about a month ago, so it's late, um, but a book that, I don't know, maybe a year away from finishing, um, essentially looking at the biology of how we have no free will whatsoever and what are we supposed to do about it and uh going very slowly let's see title is determined uh the science of life without free will mm. so it's going agonizingly slowly because among other things it has forced me to read all sorts of philosophers and that's about as far as what i have a basic ability to do as I can imagine, but that's what I've been working on. And I think it will see the light of day next year. I think I could speak on behalf of many listeners at this point when I say that I'm really excited and can't wait to read this book, which I hope is comforting to know and not more anxiety. <laughs> Depends on which word I'm trying to remember at my uh, keyboard. <laughs> Um, so, so what even is free will? Do do philosophers agree? And is it whatever philosophers think is free will? Is that the same as what the rest of us think? Or is, um, what's going on? Well, actually, 
As far as I can tell, um, there's, if not consensus, there's a whole lot of agreement along the lines. Okay, so we've got the world is or isn't deterministic, and there is or isn't free will. So two by two grid gives you four possible stances, assuming that you can only give a yes or no. So the world's deterministic and there's no free will. That's where I'm coming from. And the notion is uh, determinism and free will are completely incompatible, thus labeled incompatibilists. And if you're cranky enough, you're labeled a hard incompatibilist, which I think I qualify as. Second box in the matrix, um, you think the world is deterministic, um, but there is free will. And this is, by actual studies, about 90% of philosophers. My guess is about 99% of judges, lawyers, jury members, at least when they're serving on the jury. This is an overwhelming view where these are people who fall over themselves to make it clear we're not talking about magic. We're not talking about souls. We're not talking about fairy dust. Yes, we know the world is made of atoms and there are these things, neurons, all of that. It's a deterministic world, it's a deterministic world, but somehow that's compatible with free will. And that's far and away the dominant stance, uh, not only among philosophers and people who professionally think about this stuff, but uh, regular old folks as well. Um, third box, there's no determinism. Um, and there is free will, and those just sort of follow um, a, a libertarian stance. And then there's no determinism, but there's no free will. I don't know what's up with those folks, but they appear to be very few in number. So the basic conflict is everyone agrees the world is made out of stuff and that there's physical laws to the universe and all of that. And the question is whether you can find wiggle room in there to pull free will out. And I think there's no chance at all. This is what free will is, and you say it doesn't exist. Why does it not exist? It feels so real when I introspect, when I think about others, certainly when I want to blame them. They must have done this on their own accord, right? There must be free will. Yep, and if we have that illusion when we want to blame somebody, we've got it even more so when somebody's praising us. Damn, I did a good job. Damn, this is a just universe in which all the things that brought me to this point, I get credit for. Um, when you look at most of the people sort of mud wrestling over compatibilism versus incompatibilism, um, there's a stance that actually makes me kind of crazy because virtually the entire thing plays out over the course of a few seconds to a few minutes. Aha, can we find out that there are neurons in your brain that have already committed to an action before you're consciously aware of it? Wow, up to 10 seconds before, aha. Is that for purely predictable? Not at all. Are we looking at urges versus decisions? Are we looking at the possibility of there not being free will, but you can veto stuff in the last moment, and thus there's free want, won't? You take somebody in a trial who has done something where a jury is 
asked to decide if a four minute gap between like shooting somebody the first time and then coming back and shooting them again constitutes enough time to have asserted. So it's all played out in that realm with this underlying question of did the person intend to do it? And did they do it around the time that they intended to do it? And the reason why this makes me crazy is because what virtually none of those folks deal with is the question of where that intent come from. And the notion of can you do in free will skeptics by showing they're overly reliant on neural networks and the belief that a neuron can't do this spontaneously when, aha, neurons can't have spontaneous action. It's got nothing to do with neurons. It's got everything to do with the bazillion things that occurred that made those neurons what they are at that moment. Whether the person was stressed or hungry or tired or in pain that day, whether the person was smelling some foul odor, whether they were seeing something threatening, whether in the last couple of days their hormone levels were higher than this and lower than that, whether they neuroplastically changed their brain in the previous months in response to trauma or good news or whatever, whether they pulled off a good construction job on their frontal cortex when they were a late adolescent, what their childhood was like. Did they pick the right family? Did they have the right socioeconomic status? Did they manage to avoid the right childhood adversities? Fetal life. Was your mother marinating your brain in addictive substances? Was your mother marinating your brain in stress hormones? All of that has epigenetic effects on how your brain is going to be constructed and work forever after. And then in some ways, the, the piece of it that just sort of pleases me the most is, and you even got to take account of stuff like what your ancestors were doing 400 years ago, what sort of culture they were inventing. And parentheses, what sort of ecosystem was shaping that culture? Because there's some interesting correlations. Why I care about that from 400 years ago? Because that affects mothering style within minutes of birth. That affects the most fundamental values. That affects, you know, everything you could imagine from your first moment of life. Part of how your brain is being wired up is reflecting the values of the culture you got plopped into. One version of this, and I love this finding, go back 400 years and look at various European populations and see how severe was the load of infectious diseases in that population. And now, 400 years later, people who are descendants of cultures that were dealing with lots and lots of infectious diseases are less welcoming of strangers. They're more xenophobic. They're more in So where does intent come from? It comes from stuff a second before and a minute before and an hour and a decade and a lifetime and centuries and all this stuff that we have no control over whatsoever. That's what brings us to that moment. And if the entire free will debate is in that moment, did you intend to do that or not? And were there alternatives possible? And if that's the debate, it's totally boring because it's ignoring everything that made that brain what it is at that moment. If free will doesn't exist, why does it seem so real to us? 
Is it just that we can't grasp the complexity of our psychology, or is there some motivated reasoning so to say, that we really want to believe we have free will? Well, I think we really, really want to believe it because the alternative can be a little unsettling. One version of the unsettling is, oh, once you convince people there's no free will, they're just going to run amok. They're going to run amok. And there's been some studies where you experimentally manipulate people's extent of belief in free will. And afterward, they run amok. They cheat more on the economic game that they're playing online or whatever. They're more likely to lie, some such thing. Okay, that has gotten a lot of press. Those studies have not been particularly replicated. There's been all sorts of findings going the other direction. And here's what a much, much more interesting thing to study, which is don't take people and manipulate their sense of free will or not, because it turns out that's a pretty wimpy manipulation. Take people who, for their entire adult lives, have believed in free will, and ones whose entire adult lives have not and then see if they have differing levels of running amokness. And it turns out, not in the slightest. What that tells you is, if you spent a lot of time thinking about this, regardless of what your answer winds up being, if this is something that has been sort of central to your sense of who you are for a long time, running amok has long since lost its charm and excitement. You have found your values in some other way. And there's a remarkably similar literature that I think taps into the exact same psychology. There's no free will. I can do whatever I want because nobody can say I was responsible for it. There's no God, so I can do whatever I want because there's nobody to judge me. And a billion studies have looked at, are religious people more ethical in their behavior than atheists? And you can imagine all the all the inflammatory ways those studies have been done. But when you look at it closely and you do a careful job of figuring out what actually counts as pro-social behavior, there's no difference at all with an interesting finding, which is extremely religious people and stridently unreligious people both average out at the highest levels of ethical behavior. It's all the people in between who sort of believe in God, but it's relevant maybe Christmas morning once a year, or the people who don't really believe in God, but it's mostly because they're apathetic. And apathetists, I believe is the term, whatever. Um, if you've spent a lot of time figuring out, like, is there a God or not? Once again, pretty much regardless of what your answer is, which extreme you wind up at, uh, you're going to have given a lot of thought as to where values come from and who you are and that kind of thing. So the running amok element turns out to be a, a red herring. Um, the thing that I think really gets to people is that it is very emotionally disturbing to deal with the notion of no free will um, because we like attribution and we like agency and we get depressed when we feel like we have no control or predictability. And we like being captains of ships. And it's remarkable how many of these compatibilist philosophers somewhere in their papers sort of say, so I'm really convinced that there's free will. And if there wasn't, life would really suck because that would be really, really just a, there's a strong emotional incentive to get to that point. Um, and I think that's a lot of what's going on. People 
um, in moments of dispassion, can reason their way through believing in free will, get them in a passionate, emotionally agitated moment, and they go right back to believing in free will. If it's, you know, it's humans evaluating these questions. It seems like a really robust belief to have that free will exists, right? You would think that neuroscientists might be less likely than other people to believe that free will exists. Every neuroscientist I know is still blaming people for their behavior. Um, Maybe not everyone, sorry, some neuroscientist is listening and I'm not, but you know, most people really aren't. So I personally don't really believe that free will exists. And still here I am being proud of my achievements and, and blaming other people. So can we even get to the state where you want us to get, or is it just it's so, battle? so hard? Because if you truly believe there's no free will, um, and that we are nothing more or less than the sum of our luck, our biological luck interacting with our environmental luck, blah, blah. If you really, really believe that, you have to have a radically different view as to virtually how every minute of your life runs. And I've had that radically different view since I was like mid-aged adolescent or so when I decided all this. And 47 times a day, I prove I can't do it. I can't follow through with what intellectually seems to be the only ethically acceptable way of viewing your life, which is punishment and blame is unjustified and praise and reward are unjustified. And nonetheless, like somebody in my lab does a good job and I say, good job. And somebody's being a jerk. And I think what a jerk and somebody, you know, shoots 20 people and they're potentially up for the death penalty. And I find myself thinking, yeah, fry the bastard. And then four seconds later, I think, wait, I'm working on a death penalty case. How can I simultaneously? It's really, really hard. Are we dichotomizing whether people have free will or not too much? Because one thing I'm always surprised by is who people are, as you say, really remarkable at holding contradictory thoughts in their mind. So maybe when we're blaming others, we can recall that yeah, free will doesn't exist. We shouldn't be, we should still be punishing bad behavior, of course, but we shouldn't be blaming them as a person and claim that they made a choice. But maybe when we do something great, uh, unless it leads to like arrogant entitlement, we can remind ourselves a little bit less that free will doesn't exist and, and still get exactly. to have it both ways. Um, it's very readily done. And part of it is we have access into our inner lives and thoughts and motivations. And all we know is what everybody else does. All we know is the, the exterior measures of it. Um, and there's a pull towards dichotomizing between they had free will when they did something horrible. Um, and when you're being praised, it's that much more of a difficulty to say, no, actually, it was just damn luck. Um, there was a wonderful lecture, you could find it on YouTube, a few years ago, Harvard graduation, where I don't remember whoever's got the highest GPA or has been proclaimed as wonderful or whatever gives this graduation speech. And 
it was this guy who got up and said, wow, this is great, and we're great, and you're great, and we're also great. And you know why I'm here? You know why this went well? Why this worked out? Because my damn parents snuck into this country from Korea and have been working washing pots in restaurants 15 hours a day for the last 20 years so that I can do this. This is why I'm here. It had nothing to do with me. And it was like incredibly moving because, yeah, um, you look at the collectivity of the luck that we've land with, and it's not for nothing that an array of factors wind up being predictors of far more successful lives, more productive lives, happier lives, pro-social lives, and likewise in the opposite direction. You have mentioned that you have worked with people in court. Um, how do people react when you bring up these arguments? Are they absolutely happy about it and give you a hug and say, thank you, no, we're a more just society, or are they just surprised or angry or what's the reaction it's it's been an interesting this is turning into sort of a hobby i've done about eight or nine trials in the last four or five years all of the murder trials um and they all have essentially the same structure which is like with a, with a couple of exceptions one guy who was a mass murderer but with otherwise you had some guy who's total mess his life has been like set in stone is awful from the time he was like a second trimester fetus fetal alcohol syndrome childhood abuse parental abandonment physical abuse everything else. and just a lifetime of that who's like living on the street he was like last stabbed by some stranger six months ago for no obvious reason and he encounters another guy who's equally screwed up by life and for whatever reason attention develops between them the other guy like pulls out a weapon and our guy very effectively stabs him and leaves him lying on the ground incapacitated and then our guy begins to walk away and 30 seconds later or four minutes later it occurs to him that maybe he didn't finish off the job maybe he doesn't feel safe yet and he goes back and he kills the guy he stabs him an additional 71 times which was one case that i was working on and in which case sort of they say okay stab him the first time that was self-defense um but really walk away for a bit and think about it and then come back and stab him 71 more times, that's premeditated murder. That was enough time for you to exert control over your behavior and not do that. And like that motif, just an incredible frequency of that. And like I get up there in front of a jury and I typically get about half a day to teach them about the brain and how the brain makes decisions and how it makes decisions when you're really stressed and how it makes stress decisions when you've had every bad thing happen to you in your life. And they all nod. And with any luck, there's a couple of engineers in the jury so that they're like trained to think mechanistically about stuff and it looks great. And then they go into the jury room and look at a picture of the corpse with the 72 stab wounds and they come back and find the guy maximally guilty. I've lost eight out of the nine cases I've worked on. Um, so, yeah, viscera count for a lot. This makes me wonder where society more broadly is moving. Um, we used to blame people for showing 
symptoms of schizophrenia, but now we recognize it's biological disorders. We can't really blame people for it. So maybe we're making some progress, but maybe we're being naive. Maybe this is only as far as we can go. No, fortunately, I'm, amid my general pessimism, I'm actually optimistic about this because over and over we have shown <clears throat> we can say take some domain of human behavior and reclassify it from something laden with value judgment and instead turn it into biology and subtract out the notion of blame from it and still protect society from whatever malign aspects of it there might be. And the roof hasn't caved in. Um, and the example that I always come back to is go back 400 years in Europe. And if you were unlucky enough to have an epileptic seizure, the most refined, empathic, cerebral, wise people there had an explanation for where your seizures came from. You had consorted with Satan and they had a very good neurological treatment for you, which was to burn you at the stake. And somewhere between 400 years ago and now, people figured out, no, it's a neurological disease. It's not because you're sleeping with Satan. It's because you got screwed up potassium channels in your temporal lobe or something. And it was during the 19th century that you first started getting papers, mostly French neurologists, um, who started saying, hey, this is a disease. This is a neurological disease. This is involutional. This has nothing to do with anything. And today, if you were to take a person who with no history of epilepsy and has a grand mal seizure from out of nowhere while they're driving a car and tragically they lose control and strike and kill someone, um, a band of frenzied villagers with pitchforks are not going to show up. We sit there and say, this was the crappiest luck I could possibly imagine that this came over this person. This is just as crappy of luck if my loved one beyond words was done in by an earthquake or a tsunami or a comet hitting them or whatever. And we then have all sorts of rules. The, the result of believing there was no volition in this isn't to say, go out and do anything you want. There's all sorts of rules of how long you now need to be seizure-free on meds before being able to drive again. We've taken a whole notion of blame out of that. It's got nothing to do with blame. Society is still protected and like we're functioning, we're just fine. And exactly as you said before, forget over the last 400 years, over the last 40, 50 years or so, we have figured out schizophrenia is not due to mothers who were lousy mothers who on some like unconscious psychodynamic level hated their child and wanted to give them mixed emotional messages. And it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And that didn't happen until the 1980s or so when people started getting brain images of schizophrenics and being able to say, look, there's structural differences. It's a brain disease. And suddenly people stop saying schizophrenia is generated by schizophrenogenic mothering. And very few people, and thank God, next to no psychiatrist or psychologist anymore, would tell the mother of somebody who's just gotten diagnosed that it's all her fault. We've made that change in about 40, 50 years. We're pretty good with dyslexia now. No, it's not a kid being lazy or unmotivated. Their cortical layers are screwed up at one part of their brain having to do with learning to read or something. You know, we can do it. We do it repeatedly. 
We really don't think witches cause hailstorms anymore. We really don't put animals on trial if they've torn up your crops trying to get it some food or whatever. And people no less smart and reflective and compassionate than us believed that a thousand years ago. So we really can do it. I was once chatting with an anthropology professor who attended a conference on the neuroscience of free will. And he told me how he thought it was very amusing, how everyone was like, I found the brain region where it exists. And then the next person was like, I found the same region, brain region, and it also doesn't exist. And the reason he found this very amusing, all this back and forth, according to him, was that neuroscience is just a wrong level of analysis for free will. Maybe it doesn't exist biologically, but if we experience it, just like we have abstract concepts, like we live in a nation, um, these concepts matter to us, even though it's not a physical entity. So I don't know how much you identify as a, as a physicalist, everything comes down to physics, or if maybe these, these illusions, biological illusions, if we want, uh, can still have important uh, influences on our life. Yeah, and that person exactly taps into it. One version of the countering free will skeptics is to say, yeah, 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 it's not in any neuron. It sure is not in any synapse or any molecule. It's emergent, all of that. And it's something that emerges socially. It comes out of the social contract that we have. And another version is to simply be unable to tell the difference between free will and the illusion of free will. And those are the, we have an incredibly strong pull towards feeling that sort of thing. And there's wonderful studies, a whole literature showing you can manipulate people's sense of agency over things quite readily. That's half of social psychology. I mean, ask somebody what their favorite detergent is. And if you've subliminally cued them with the word ocean in the previous couple of minutes, they're more likely than chance to say tide. Tide is my favorite detergent. Go tell me there's free will after that one or any of a billion other things that 25% of the men on death row in this country have a history of concussive head trauma to their frontal cortex. Um, so like anthropologists, that's fine, but that's the, it just feels like it has to work that way applies throughout all of our history where we thought if you want to like cure a disease, sacrifice a goat and, you know, commit its intestines to whatever four gods you think were responsible. And that felt just as intuitively obvious. And intuitive obviousness is not the same thing as proving that something is the case. Why free will? Out of all the topics in the world, you've, you've done research, you're a primatologist, you've worked on stress, you've worked on so many different topics on the hippocampus. Why free will? Why this topic? Um, well, for one thing, I realized I've been taking notes about this subject since I was about 15. Um, and like all I've been doing is getting more doctrinaire and extreme. But the main thing, three, four years ago, I published an agonizingly long book um, called Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. It's like, it's basic song and dance is why did that behavior occur? Because of biology one second ago, one minute ago, one hour ago, one million years ago. And 
so like do a lot of talks about it in the aftermath and get emails from a lot of people. And something that stunned me was the number of people who seemed stunned by the implications of all this stuff, going through what prenatal environment has to do with your adult tendency towards addictive behavior, people going, you know, all of these sorts of things. They're saying, whoa, there's, there's not as much free will as I thought. I, you know, ivory tower, even if like other neuroscientists are going and praising people, you know that if you really pin them against a wall, most of them are going to say, yeah, 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 there's some free will. But, oh yeah, this is like novel and potentially devastatingly disruptive to an awful lot of people out there. Um, and when debating over and over with people as a result about, oh, there's no free will or whatever, um, it would get to this uncomfortable point and was saying, yes, yeah, so how are we supposed to have the world function if everybody actually started thinking like you? And I said, I don't know. I haven't a clue. I have no idea. So this book has been my last three years of trying to figure out like how you can function. Like, hooray, we can function thinking that people with epilepsy are not consorting with the devil um what if we did that about a thousand more things than just that like how would things function i don't know but we can do it because we've repeatedly done it is there an argument in favor of the existence of free will that has you sleepless at night where you think ah damn maybe it exists um You know, I'm going to sound snarky and arrogant, but no, no, there's really, there's, I mean, there's, there's classifiable ways that people get to, and there's free will, and there's like classifiable, recognizable patterns of myopia or illogic or misreading of science or emotional wishful thinking taking over there's the people who say free will comes out of chaos theory then there are ones who say free will comes out of emergent complexity then there's the ones who say free will come out of quantum indeterminacy and god save us from all of those and then there are the ones who say free will comes out of the fact that you can show where intent happens in the two minutes before a behavior occurs and history doesn't matter And then there's the ones who say free will exists, not right now when you just did what you did, but it existed in the past when you formed your character that, that influenced what you did at this moment. Or free will exists, it's just not where you're looking. It's somewhere else in the brain. It's floating between people. It's, so there's actually like standard, like I can read some of these people and like within three paragraphs saying, Oh, okay, that's their shtick. Um, and again, to hopefully not sound too snarky, an incredible percentage of papers by compatibilist philosophers who try to incorporate neuroscience thinking into their thinking, like these papers can basically be boiled down to three sentences. Sentence one, 
wow, neuroscience is discovering all sorts of cool, interesting stuff about our deterministic world. Sentence number two, wow, some of the stuff they're discovering is so challenging our notions of agency and responsibility and free will that we're going to have to overthrow our complete concepts of everything in our lives. Sentence number three, nah, not really. And that's essentially the paper. Okay, is it nah, not really because of quantum indeterminacy or not really because the free will actually happen back before this seemingly unfree behavior? You know, it's there's consistent styles of thought as to people. And it's like delightful seeing different branches of compatibilists arguing with each other rather than like going after incompatibilists. But you know, there's styles of ways, again, snarky. There's styles of different ways in which it is possible to pull a rabbit out of a hat. What evidence would you need to be convinced that free will actually exists? Ah, okay, here's the really, what will initially seem idiotically reductive, but is in fact maybe idiotically holistic or something. Okay, so a behavior just happened. Let's let's make it as atomistic as possible. Somebody has just pulled a trigger on a gun and like vast consequences. And why did they do that? And you know, your your finger extension, flexion, whatever, it just flexed. It just flexed because of a motor neuron in your motor cortex that caused that muscle to do that. Why did that motor neuron have an action potential? Because another neuron excited it. Why did that neuron have it? Because, and so on and so on. Ignoring the fact that it wasn't just one neuron, it was networks of diversion and conversion, but you get the picture. And the idiotically reductive thing is to then say, show me the neuron that started it, that started it for no reason whatsoever. No neuron was talking to it. Nothing was causing it to depolarize, whatever. Show me that neuron, the neuron that is a causeless cause. And, you know, maybe we're talking about free will. That's the ridiculously reductive version. What it really would take is, yeah, show me a neuron that just had an action potential for no reason whatsoever and started this whole ca cascade and show me that that neuron's function was in no way affected by the person's mood or stress or state of mind that day, by any sensory stimuli in the previous hour, by yesterday's hormone levels, by adolescence, by childhood abuse and their epigenetic consequences, by their genes, by their fetal... Show me a neuron whose function is completely unaffected by any of those things that preceded it, and then you've discovered free will. And it's not possible because, you know, from the moment your brain is being formed, epigenetic stuff is happening. From the moment you could make a synapse, you were making more synapses or less synapses based on experience from the moment, so on and so forth. Um, not just the neuron that fired from out of nowhere, but a neuron that has never been influenced by the universe of biological factors over which we have no control. And, you know, I don't think that can be shown. 
what would our life look like if free will actually existed? Would we even notice because we have this strong illusion? Would we even how would how would life be different? Um, <laughs> I'd probably be a lot happier on a regular basis because uh, this I don't know this could be kind of demoralizing stuff. Um, most people wouldn't change their behavior in the slightest. Uh, probably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there'd be more corporal punishment and maybe beheadings or like having people ripped apart by frenzied mobs in the middle of the town hamlet would happen after which the innards would be fed to the town dogs kind of thing. Um, people would feel what most people feel now, which is a lot of means of deciding that you're entitled to something and a lot of means for deciding you hate someone. Um, because if you really, really, really believe there's no such thing as free will, you're not entitled to any damn thing more than anyone else because you didn't earn it. And you have no grounds for hating anybody because they had nothing to do with it. Um, and it, you know, if all you do is convince people that everyone was the captain of their ship, it's a lot easier to turn and look the other way rather than help someone because whose fault is it? It's a lot easier to decide that your effort counted for more than anyone else's because you you knew how effortful your effort was and everybody else just looked like, you know, mannequins doing their thing. Um, you know, it would be a lot crappier of a world. And the notion that if people stop believing in free will, just everyone's going to run amok and criminals are going to run throughout the street and people would lie about their SAT scores in order to get into graduate programs and college and they would feel no compunction or whatever. Like, oh my God, the world would fall apart. It would be a world without people thinking they were especially entitled and a world without hatred. And a world that is incredibly liberating for the 50% of people who are below average on whatever it is. If the idea that there is no free will makes you all depressed and existentially despairing, because does that mean I'm really not responsible for my accomplishments and the people who love me and undeservedly and all of that? If you get despairing from the notion that there's no free will, you're one of the lucky ones. If you're liberated by the notion that there's no free will, it's not my damn fault. It's what socioeconomic status I was born into. It's not my damn fault. It's the pesticides that used to get sprayed all over our like sharecroppers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, liberating people from the notion that they are at fault for the way things have turned out badly is going to be is the cause of a whole lot more misery on earth than telling people who are wonderfully accomplished that they may not deserve as much praise as they get. Um, on the balance, it's going to be a lot better world if people decide that uh, we are simply the outcomes of biological luck. Yeah, it reflects a certain cynicism to believe that, you know, once people have an excuse to be selfish, they will immediately grab it. People are constantly looking for, for a reason to do whatever they want to do. They're not intrinsically moral, but it's just not the case. And in fact, oftentimes people blame themselves for things they should not be blaming themselves for because it's just you know, determinism from, from your point of view. Wonderful example of that. 
um, there's this literature, this phenomenon in hypertension um, among African-Americans, extremely high rates of hypertension. And is it having to do something with salt retention? Is it cardiovascular? Lots of research, psychosocial explanations that have perfect logic built around stress. But there's this additional phenomenon, uh, which has been called John Henryism. Uh, John Henry folk character, American folk character, I don't know, from the 1900s or something. John Henry, uh, African-American worker who was building railroad lines and was incredibly strong, was the fastest anyone. And one day the bosses come and say, we have a machine, a machine that could do it faster than you. And John Henry says, no way. And he works so hard and he's keeping up with a machine that's parallel. And then he just barely finally manages to defeat the machine coming first and then keels over dead. Um, and John Henryism is a personality style, an attributional style, a reappraisal style that you find in African-American individuals who interpret the institutional, the systemic racism all around them as being less institutionalized and less systemic. They endorse statements like, you know, if you could just talk with any, someone, anybody can get along with anyone, or, you know, People sort of make their own beds and, you know, versions of agency. And if that's your personality style, if in the face of systemic racism, your guiding forces, anyone should be able to come overcome it by just finding the commonalities and just sitting down with someone and looking them straight in the eye. And if that's your interpretation of why you were subject to all sorts of prejudice, um, you were far, far more at risk for hypertension because it's your own damn fault. And that's like a great medical example of what a pathological belief in agency and efficacy and free will can get you. Um, you know, in terms of stress management, yeah, 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 control is great. Predictability is great. Some of the time, the most humane things we can do is tell someone they had no control. You couldn't have stopped the car in time the way that kid leapt out. It wouldn't have mattered if you had gotten them to the doctor a month ago. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Uh, discovering there's no free will is going to be liberating for the majority of people on earth. If you could go back in time and meet young Robert as a teenager before he realized free will does not exist and you were some, some matrix sort of person and you have a red pill and a blue pill, you could offer him to swallow the red pill, which seems like what you've done, right? Realize free will doesn't exist, lead the life that you, that you were leading. Um, or you could believe that free will actually exists and you will never never get rid of this belief, but genuinely believe it and, and, and swallow the blue pill. What would you do? <laughs> you know, this is going to do in all the truth and beauty of the search for knowledge and all that. Hell, I would take the pill that would allow me to believe in free will any day. Mm -hmm. I would 
take whatever pill you can offer me to make me believe again there's a God. I would take any pill out there to make me believe there's a purpose in life, that this is not a vast, indifferent, empty universe, that sort of thing. You know, screw the intellectual-like standards and that sort of thing. Well, I, I, that's not what I think how the world works. If I could believe that stuff, I would go for it in a second. I am very envious of people who can do that because it's comforting. Um, there isn't a week that goes by where I don't wish like I thought there was a God and that could explain some stuff in the world. Um, so yeah, I would, I would jump out of my seat to grab the, whichever color it was that led you down the path of self-delusion. Sadly, we're running up against time, but I want to give you an opportunity to add whatever you want to clarify maybe something that people claimed you said, but actually you didn't. Um, something you want to add to, to what you've said already about free will? Um, nothing in terms of misinterpretation, and I've managed to rant about most of the things I would like to rant about on the subject. Um, one of the rules that you see over and over, or one of the findings, um, if you look at people who don't believe in God, or don't believe there's a purposeful universe, or as an emerging literature, if you look at people who don't believe in free will, um, despite all the liberation I was just going on about, um, that's a predictor of a greatly increased risk of depression. Depression, anxiety disorders, believing there's no purpose, there's no control. I mean, that's like textbook of what the psychological building blocks are of stress and depression as a disorder of chronic psychological stress. Um, so in the face of, you know, catastrophically high levels of depression in our society before the pandemic hit and everything just worse since then, um, that is a domain where lots of us, and especially people who would be listening to a Stanford broadcast about psychology, with that level of life's going okay for them, um, that's a realm that just begs you to decide that depression is a problem of volition. And if you could only just pull it together, you could overcome it. And it doesn't work that way. It's a biological disease. So... I don't know if I have to do anything preachy at the end here, insofar as for many people, that's a logical outcome of a lot of this uh, dispiriting stuff. Don't get a double whammy out of it that, like, it's now your fault because not only is there free will, there's free will to increase the amount of serotonin and, like, your frontal cortex biology. It's yet another realm of biology where some people are more lucky than others. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you, Robert, once more for joining the podcast. And also, again, on behalf of many, many listeners, um, no pressure, but we can't wait <laughs> to, to read the book. Um, and we're really looking forward to it. Well, good, thanks. Okay, take care, Eric.